Talking History on News Talk. Good evening and welcome. We're Talking History on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, we're looking at the life and work of the great American modernist writer John Steinbeck, and we'll be finding out why his works have been so controversial. We'd love you to join our discussion. You can send us an email, talkinghistory at newstalk.com, or you can text us 53106 and text cost 30 cent. Last week, we brought you the story of a castaway who found shelter among the Gaelic Irish after the failure of the Spanish Armada, invest Investigated violence against women in the Irish Revolution and explored the idea of Jesus as a revolutionary. And if you want to listen back to this or any of our older shows, just go to our website, newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts. Well, tonight's debate is on John Steinbeck. Born in Salinas in California in 1902, Steinbeck published his first novel in 1929 and achieved critical success in the decade ahead, with novels such as Tortilla Flat and Of Mice and Men also turned into movies. The Grapes of Wrath, published in 1939, won the Pulitzer Prize, but its searing critique of capitalism and poor working conditions was controversial. Indeed, Steinbeck's books have been some of the most banned in the United States. During the Second World War, Steinbeck saw military action and was wounded by shrapnel. In 1952, he published what he considered his masterpiece, East of Eden, and he collaborated on the movie version, which saw the debut of James Dean. In 1962, he was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature, but this received some criticism from those who believed his writing was too limited. Steinbeck died in 1968. Acclaimed now as a brilliant writer, Steinbeck is praised for his critique of the corrosiveness of power and for exposing the dangers of of income inequality and his optimism in the face of huge suffering continues to inspire readers around the world and so in tonight's show we want to assess his life and his legacy and to help me do this I'm delighted to welcome our panel of experts Professor Susan Schillinglaw is Professor of English at SJSU San Jose State University and is one of the world's leading experts on John Steinbeck and her books include A Journey into Steinbeck's California, On Reading the Grapes of Wrath and Carl and John Steinbeck, Portrait of a Marriage. Professor Tara Stubbs is Associate Professor in English Literature and Director of Studies in English Literature and Creative Writing at Oxford University and is an expert on modernist literature. Her books include American Literature and Irish Culture, 1910 to 1955, The Politics of Enchantment, as well as The Modern Irish Sonnet. Professor Nicholas P. Taylor is Professor of English and Comparative Literature at SJSU, San Jose State University, and is the Director of the Martha Heasley Cox Centre for Steinbeck Studies, an award-winning novelist and short story writer. He has also published on Steinbeck, including the essay John Steinbeck, Malin Blaine and The Maniac. Well, you're all very welcome. And later in the show, I'll be talking to Dr. Danica Churche, president of the International Society of Steinbeck Scholars, who teaches English at the University of Ljubljana and who has written extensively on Steinbeck. Well, uh, you're all very welcome. But Susan, I might begin with you. And I might begin with, I suppose, uh, Steinbeck today as a writer, because he still is controversial for some people. There are some still who would like to see his works banned, who don't like some of the language used in some of the works. But he's also a hugely popular uh, writer. He's on uh, the reading lists in many schools, both in the United States and around the world. His works are studied, they're analysed, but they're also enjoyed by many readers. Uh, who still find much to inspire. So it is a very interesting legacy that Steinbeck has and, and a hold that he continues to exert on readers. Uh, very much so. I think that Steinbeck always wanted to engage his readers. One of the words he used again and again was participation. Uh, and he wanted readers to truly participate, to feel, to emotionally connect with his characters, with the situation. So I think that's one reason for his popularity. His prose is also very lucid. He said he wanted to have a child's perspective, um, which doesn't mean simplicity, but means clarity. And then I, he, he writes about uh, working people, marginalized, um, people on the edges. Um, and he asks us to see them, first of all, and have empathy, um, secondly. So all of those things, I think, help him remain popular. And Susan, it's very interesting. We sometimes think of writers as being these great 
aloof intellectuals who are out of touch with what's going on in the world. But Steinbeck was was really engaged with the popular culture of the time. He he loved comic books, for example. He he loved cinema and and, and collaborated on many film productions. I think he wrote a, a screenplay for Alfred Hitchcock. I think he wanted his name taken off at the end, but he it was something that he was engaged with. He he wasn't just staying in his room writing novels and stories. No, that's particularly true after, well, the, the late 1930s with publication of Grapes of Wrath and Dubious Battle and uh, of Mice and Men. He became very much engaged in California politics, homelessness, um, the field workers. Um, of course, he grew up in Salinas where he often worked in the fields himself. But I think from that time on, he was very much a, a man of his country and he really wanted to be engaged politically. He had the ear of presidents. He was um, as you say, he also loved um, silliness. Uh, he could write humorously. He could write seriously. Uh, he could write about political affairs as well as the, you know, the um, the homeless and bums of Monterey. So quite a quite a wide range in his writing. And Susan, it's interesting there. You say he had the ear of presidents, and you know, he he was much admired by Lyndon B. Johnson, who honoured him, and he seems to have mm-hmm. uh, liked Johnson. And I couldn't quite work out Steinbeck's politics. That in in many areas he seemed to be, you could say, on the left. He he cared about the conditions of workers. He he opposed the communist witch hunts. But in other areas, then he you could maybe describe him as being on the right for example with that support for you know certainly John when when Johnson in Vietnam and uh, in, in it, it wasn't as clear-cut as him always taking a particular stand on issues well I think that he was very much a Cold War writer and got very much engaged in defending democracy during the Cold War um, because he'd been attacked by communist newspapers for his, largely for his stance on Vietnam. It wasn't so much that he supported the war as he supported the, initially the American rhetoric around the war, that it was really, a, you know, saving democracy, etc. Once he went overseas and saw the war, he changed his mind. Um, so he thought that he thought Johnson was deluding the American public and that it was an unwinnable war, but he didn't have time really to correct himself in print. So I'm not sure that he slipped to the right so much as he was fiercely patriotic and he really thought that a writer's role was to comment on and critique, if necessary, the the government. And so I think he took that role very seriously. And um, so it was... And again, then he didn't have time to correct his stance on war. That's very interesting. The Vietnam and, and, War in particular. Yeah, and it's part of that, because of these searing critiques, it's one of the reasons why in, in his lifetime uh, some of the works were so controversial because they really did expose the inequalities and injustices around him. Nick, I want to bring you in on, on the, the description I always read is that he's this great modernist writer. So what does that actually mean in terms of, of modernism and, and, and his contribution to modernism? Well, uh, I don't know if anyone out there has seen the new Ken Burns, Lynn Novick documentary about Hemingway that came out a, a couple uh, a couple months ago. I, my wife and I saw it recently, and I thought I knew everything about Hemingway, and it was really wonderfully wonderfully done. Three uh, terse episodes of two hours each. I recommend it highly. But one thing that um, that they mentioned um, they had an interview with the novelist uh, and short story writer Tobias Wolf about Hemingway. And he said, uh, you know, the thing about Hemingway as a stylist, as a modern stylist, is that he changed uh, where the furniture was placed in the room of American literature. And what he meant was that, uh, that the terse style that Hemingway popularized in the 1920s was something, um, you know, it had, it's debatable where it came from exactly, but it was certainly identified with him. And all American writers at the time, all American writers who came after, fiction writers, had to, in one way or another, engage with uh, the rearranged furniture, to use Tobias Wolff's analogy. And I think that's absolutely true of Steinbeck. 
um, he there are letters where uh, where he explains um, that uh, he supposes he's going to have to write this way now or some some phrase like that not saying that he's going that he particularly um, wanted to imitate Hemingway but that he recognized that there had been a shift in uh, in the way that uh, American fiction writers were um, were approaching their craft, and I think you see that in his writing, moving from the twenties, you know, his juvenilia, and also his his early uh, novel Cup of Gold, into the works that Susan mentioned uh, a few minutes ago that made him famous in the later uh, half of the nineteen thirties. And I think that I, I would not claim that he was a stylistic innovator. Um, in the way that Hemingway was, but I think that the way that he applied this style to material was um, was new, and since then has been uh, imitated so frequently that um, you know it's hard to to identify that as the Steinbeck style. But using um, a kind of sparse uh, modern um, prose that that uh, has the kind of clarity that Susan was talking about um, and applying that to material with political ramifications with ecological ramifications um, and and uh, you know um, demographic um, commentary was something completely new and um, I think in that sense he's more than any other he's He's uh, an innovator and um, a modernist. And yet, Nick, this wasn't always appreciated in his lifetime. And when he won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1962, it, it was criticised by one Swedish newspaper as one of the Academy's biggest mistakes. Uh, the New York Times was critical, thought uh, uh, he had limited talent. And uh, recently, archival material released by the, uh, the, the, the Nobel Prize Academy show that there was big debates amongst them about awarding it and it shows that you know even even when he had produced all of these great works there were still many people even some of those who were about to award him the the highest prize who 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 weren't sure how good he really was <laughs> this debate irks me to no end um, and obviously I've got a dog in the fight as a, a Steinbeck fan but my my line on on this Nobel Prize debate is usually compare it to the way science Nobels are awarded. Generally speaking, scientists are awarded the Nobel Prize late in their career for groundbreaking work that they accomplished much earlier. Um, so, for example, the, uh, an American scientist um, was part of a team recently um, awarded the Nobel Prize for for work on the genetic editing process known as CRISPR. That's not something that that happened in the last five or 10 years, even, you know, that's, that's uh, an innovation from, from several decades ago. And I'm not sure why the, the uh, criteria should be different for the prize in literature. I, there can be no, even in the late sixties, there could be no uh, debate of the importance of Steinbeck's late thirties work. And that's perfectly in line with the timetable that the Nobel committee uses for for honoring scientists. So, uh, I, you know, unlike the the scientific um, awards, which uh, you know have some, at least at least some um, semblance of a quantitative or uh, verifiable um, way to to assess the impact of the awardee. You know, that being that science builds on previous science and moves on like that. Literature doesn't work exactly the same way. And there is always going to be a kind of um, ebb and flow among uh, literary tastes and aesthetics. And I think at the time that he was awarded the Nobel Prize, his style of social realism had fallen out of favor uh, aesthetically. And uh, I just don't think it's a fair critique. Um, because I think that his his place in the the march of of literary history was um, important and worthy of recognition. 
do you think there was a certain snobbery because of the, the the themes he wrote about, and maybe even because of the fact that he was his books were being turned into movies, and you had big yeah. named actors uh, in the roles? That I, I thought that maybe there was a certain element that people were looking down on the works because because they were popular, because they were being turned into movies, and because they weren't the normal yeah. subject matter. I think that's absolutely true as well. Um, you know, that the, the kids now call that being a hater, you know, and I think that um, there were certainly people in the literary establishment at that point who resented Steinbeck's popularity. Uh, there are still people who resent Steinbeck's popularity. I mean, that hasn't really gone away. Steinbeck is much more widely read in, uh, in middle schools and high schools in America than he is in universities. And I think that is because of his clarity and his um, the, the ease with which students can comprehend what he what he's saying. That, I don't think that in any way diminishes the complexity of his work. But um, you know, it could be that the Nobel Prize uh, detractors um, resented um, the kind of obviousness of the choice. You know, I mean, um, sometimes the Nobel Prize Committee will choose. Um, authors who, uh, you know, are more obscure than others, uh, who are less widely known in, um, well, certainly in the English speaking world. And sometimes that forces those of us in the English language literary world to scratch our heads and say, well, you know, Thomas, Thomas Transtormer, who's that? You know, and then, of course, we all go out and learn who that is. Um, with Steinbeck, I think it's something quite different. Uh, you know, it's more like you see with the scientists. It's someone who's, who um, was undoubtedly important um, for certain contributions, but those contributions were potentially um, uh, created years before. And so I think, that, yeah, I, I mean, I think other writers probably resented it because they think, well, Steinbeck has to get everything. It, he has to get the movie deal and the Nobel Prize. You know, I, I, as a writer myself, I can see how that would frustrate uh, other writers. And it's interesting, Nick, we're having the show today on the 4th of July, Independence Day in the United States. And it's interesting that Steinbeck's work, it's, it's you know, Susan has mentioned that he was very patriotic, but at the same time, he wasn't afraid to critique what that independence meant and what was the reality for for working people and uh, for, for people struggling during the Depression in the 1930s, for example. No question. No question about that. Um, you know, he, he is remembered most of all as a, a sort of warrior for social justice through his art. And he's still held up by, by others um, in, in subsequent movements as uh, a model and um, an inspiration. Tara, there's a very interesting Irish connection and your wonderful book looks at the influence of Irish culture on modernist American writers and Steinbeck does have that Irish connection and that sometimes he, he could be quite ambivalent about his Irish background or certainly about the Irish. Yeah, that's right. Thank you so much, Patrick, for inviting me. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, in, in the book that you mentioned very kindly, um, I, I looked at examples of when American writers had quite strange relationships with Ireland. And I think Steinbeck is a really good example. He was of German inheritance on his father's side, but on his mother's, he had Irish background. Both of his maternal grandparents were from Ireland. His grandfather, Samuel Hamilton, was from the village of Ballykelly in County Derry. And his grandmother, Eliza, was from Cork. Uh, both were Protestant, but his grandmother was actually a convert to Protestantism. And both of them, as well as their children, appear as fictionalised versions of themselves in East of Eden. But here his grandparents are shown to be contrasting types. His grandfather is dreamy. He's a chatty inventor, fond of telling stories. But his grandmother is practical, puritanical and rather frightening. And I think this contrast reflects what was Steinbeck's lifelong and rather contradictory relationship with Ireland. On the one side, he was attracted to Celtic mysticism and storytelling, and he talks sometimes about his purely Celtic inheritance and other phrases like that. But on the other, he was really critical of things like Irish nationalism and what he called in 1935 the dirty rednecks of the Irish Free State when his novels were censored by the Censorship of Publications Act. So it's a kind of unusual relationship that he has there. And he made, uh, I think, at least one big visit back to Ireland. 
Yeah, that's right. So he, um, Nick's actually spoken about uh, quite recently. Actually, I heard Nick speaking about his visits um, to Ireland in the 1960s. But the most famous essay he wrote about this was called "I Go Back to Ireland," and it was published in 1952, the same year as East of Eden, where he describes the trip he made home uh, to Ireland. But he'd been hesitant about making the trip, and he'd been been avoiding it for years, talking about his reluctance to go. Um, he was worried, I think, that the realities would not live up to the stories he'd been told as a boy, where he said only kings and heroes came from this holy island. And at the very top of the glittering pyramid was our family, the Hamiltons. And in this essay, he talks about how the trip was disappointing. The people of Derry, where they stayed, were cold and inhospitable. He couldn't get a drink. And then he later found out that none of his family members were still alive. But he did eventually find the village where they lived and he took a single rose from the grave of one of his ancestors. He called it the seat of my culture and the origin of my being and the soil of my background, the one full blown evidence of a thousand years of family. But at the same time, he said that during the disappointments of the trip, he said reality was violating every inherited memory. And I was saying to myself that if the old folks went away from here, maybe they had good reason. So you can, you can see there that constant contrast. He even mocked Ireland's greenery, saying though it was green, so is Scotland, and he wouldn't submit the greens to a colour test. But as I mentioned before, it wasn't the only time he went to Ireland. He would make return trips in the 1960s, and he would stay with the American filmmaker John Houston in Galway in 1964, and would write about these trips uh, for Collier's ma magazine into the 1960s. So it obviously had a, a, a pull back for him. And in something like East of Eden, do you see autobiographical elements appearing there from from that background? Yeah, that's right. So the story of Samuel Hamilton and his family takes up a chunk of East of Eden. And I think it was supposed to be a bigger chunk than it end up, ended up being. We look at we can look at journal of a novel, which is the background kind of diary to writing East of Eden. And in the, the story itself, it's told in parallel to the Cain and Abel narrative of the Trasks though its significance in the narrative wanes at various points in the novel. And actually, you mentioned the film earlier, but the story of the Hamiltons is largely erased from that from that version, which is quite interesting. Um, Steinbeck described East of Eden as the uh, two books, the story of my country and the story of me. He based the characters of Liza and Samuel on his grandparents, although both are being described as being from the north, though the real Liza was from Cork. But as his grandfather died when he was two, he based much of this on family stories told to him by his mother and by other family members. And I think it's really interesting because he says he could personally remember the lilt in Samuel's speech and the curious poetry that surrounded him. And in East of Eden itself, the narrator says, I must depend on hearsay, on old photographs, on stories told, and on memories which are hazy and mixed with fable in trying to tell you about the Hamiltons. But at the same time, in Journal of a Novel, which, as I said, is a diary come companion piece to East of Eden, he says, all of the Hamilton stories are true. And I think it's really interesting because he takes that idea of kind of Irish storytelling and, and the way that Irish storytelling combines fact and fiction and fable and myth and puts it into writing, into writing East of Eden. Very interesting. Nick, uh, I'm hoping just before we go to our ad break that you might be able to do a, a short reading from us, for us. Uh, sure, I'm, ha I'm happy to. I was thinking about maybe reading from Travels with Charlie in Search of America, if that'd be okay with you. That sounds perfect. So this is a, a travelogue that Steinbeck wrote after taking a trip across the United States in 1960. He started off uh, at his home in on Long Island in New York, and he had a um, he he had a camper van that he had outfitted for the occasion, and he took along uh, his poodle Charlie, and he wanted to uh, get back in touch with um, with the United States people the way that he felt that he had been in the 1930s, but uh, hadn't been lately, um, and it's it, it you know it's a very influential book i think a lot of um a lot of subsequent travelogues have owe it a debt um stylistically but i wanted to read a little bit from the the um emotional climax of the book which is when he goes out of his way to go to stop off in new orleans where um a little girl a little black girl um has recently um been uh, enrolled in a formerly all-white school 
So this was after schools were desegregated by force by the uh, by the the courts, the federal courts in the United States, and it took many years for the South to come around to that court decision and um, and respect the the integration move. So this was uh, when Steinbeck joined a crowd of onlookers outside this elementary school. All of the white families had pulled their children from the school in protest. And so this one little girl, six years old, was, her name was Ruby Bridges. Steinbeck didn't know her name at the time. Uh, and she was, had to be escorted into the school through the crowd every day um, by U United States Marshals, so federal police. Uh, and she was taunted and uh, the, 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 some of the parents from the school yelled racial slurs at her and attempted to uh, intimidate her, but she was undeterred. She was really one of the, the bravest Americans in history, in my opinion. Um, I had a chance to meet her as an adult uh, several years ago, and she's dedicated her life to, um, to speaking to children about the need for uh, tolerance and uh, racial justice. And so... I wanted to just read Steinbeck's description um, of, of when um, she is uh, brought, brought in. Okay. Um, the big marshal stood her on the curb, and a jangle of jeering shrieks went up from behind the barricades. The little girl did not look at the howling crowd, but from the side, the whites of her eyes showed like those of a frightened fawn. The men turned her around like a doll, and then the strange procession moved up the broad walk toward the school, and the child was even more a mite because the men were so big. Then the girl made a curious hop, and I think I know what it was. I think in her whole life she had not gone ten steps without skipping, but now, in the middle of her first skip, the weight bore her down, and her little round feet took measured, reluctant steps between the tall guards. Slowly, they climbed the steps and entered the school. Excellent. Okay. I could go on, Patrick. No, I, and I'm sure our listeners would love that. No, I think we're really getting a sense of the, the, some of the musicality and indeed the magic of Steinbeck's writing. We're going to take a quick break now. When we come back, I'll be exploring how visionary a writer was Steinbeck and what made his voice so distinctive. So stay with us here on News Talk. Talking History. On News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we look at the life, work, and legacy of John Steinbeck. And I'm delighted to be joined by an internationally acclaimed expert on John Steinbeck, the president of the International Society of Steinbeck Scholars, uh, and that is Professor Danica Thurcha, who's, uh, as I say, president of that international society, also a professor of English at the University of Ljubljana, and as someone who has written extensively on John Steinbeck. And I'm just wondering how visionary a writer do you? think he was and does he deserve his title as the father of American literary modernism? Well certainly uh, Steinbeck uh, was a very efficient writer uh, although of course uh, in the past uh, there were also different views about his his reputation uh, but now there has been the revival of serious critical interest in his work let's say since the 1980s and the 1990s and this, I think, gives evidence that he has remained a significant figure in American and world literature. Uh, so I would say that with this ethical approach to Steinbeck's works, and by this I mean evaluating them with this critical objectivity and without preconceived ideas about philosophy or uh, ideology in his works, uh, or simply accepting them for what they are, Steinbeck's works and the works of his American contemporaries are now placed side by side. But this was not possible some decades ago, as I, I said before. Uh, so, I don't know, maybe if I just mention briefly that from the very beginning, uh, critics expressed widely divergent opinions regarding his position in the Western literary canon and in comparison with his uh, literary peers. And several critics rated his work as middle-brow, 
simplistic and sentimental and therefore unworthy a position alongside such literary giants as Hemingway, Fitzgerald and Faulkner. Uh, and these unappreciative uh, or dismissive views were connected with um, the early classification of his best-known novel, The Grapes of Wrath, as propaganda rather than art, and this was due to its uh, radical political content. So, um, although unpopular with many American literary critics, Steinbeck received, as we know, the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1962, and even then many critics thought that his popularity would decline after his death. But it didn't, and this was well noticeable, uh, for example, on the occasion of the centenary of his birth in 2002, when almost 200 events in 38 states were honoring Steinbeck. And uh, his books dealing with a broad range of issues, including social, political, cultural, moral, and environmental, continue to sell millions of copies every year, both in and outside the United States. And this, again, proves that they are as relevant today as at the time when they were written. Um, we could say that as a part of the people, Steinbeck gave a voice to the downtrodden and dispossessed in America, and he also influenced a whole generation of new writers. Um, so, uh, unlike before, uh, as we said, when at some American colleges and universities was forbidden even to say the name Steinbeck, today uh, his uh, place in American literature is secure and Previously, unappreciative judgments of Steinbeck as a simple, sentimental writer with limited talents and ideas are now uh, mostly the thing of the past. Um, maybe if I mention the opinion of the distinguished scholar Stephen George, uh, according to his opinion, Steinbeck is one of a few writers who actually represents America in some significant way to the rest of the world. Or the American playwright Arthur Miller, for example, also observed that no other American writer so deeply penetrated the political life in the country as Steinbeck did with his uh, The Grapes of Wrath. Uh, or if I mention uh, Nelly Harper Lee, uh, the author of well-known To Kill a Mockingbird, she emphasized Steinbeck's profound influence on American writing and culture. And uh, today, critics tend to share the view that Steinbeck will continue to fascinate readers with his natural gifts for shaping the raw materials of life into fiction. And in my view, by offering a reader a way of, exper of experiencing and understanding the concrete features of social life and their interaction with human aspirations, hopes, fears, and concerns, Steinbeck creates bonds identification and empathy, because of which it's really difficult not to respond to the social maladies unveiled in his books with strong emotional reaction. Uh, you, in your question, you also uh, somehow, um, your question also related to um, uh, Steinbeck as being the American, as being the father of the American literary modernist, modernism. Um, so uh, I would somehow, um, I would somehow uh, say I would really not consider him the father of his of this literary movement, because he started his literary career in the wake of 
T.S. Eliot's long poem, The Wasteland, or Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby, or Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises, or Faulkner's The Sound and the Fury, uh, all of them powerful works of modernism. Um, it seems to me that Steinbeck did not want to write in the tradition of this, of his immediate uh, predecessors, uh, because he was relying on oral and folk traditions rather than on the literary traditions out of which these powerful works of the 1920s modernism had been written. Uh, so in somehow I think that Steinbeck's relationship to modernism is more complex than it seems, and this is perhaps best seen uh, in The Grapes of Wrath. Uh, the novel draws on two literary traditions, uh, the long-standing protest novel in American fiction and the emerging modernist novel. And Steinbeck managed to join the two strands, putting modernist uh, themes, techniques, and tropes to work for social cause. Uh, Steinbeck's readiness to sacrifice characterization in favor of argumentation and the didacticism implemented in a number of personal editorial digressions make The Grapes of Wrath an inheritor of, for example, Upton Sinclair's The Jungle or other socially engaged novels. Other aspects of the novel show Steinbeck's, uh, uh, so Steinbeck's flirting with modernism, so to say, and these include his experimentation with form and language, uh, like contrasting literary and vernacular language, uh, and uh, perhaps most importantly, uh, through his repetition of the word dust, Steinbeck not only established his setting and dramatized the plight of the Oklahoma farmers, but he also appropriated and redeployed a modernist trope from many important novels and poems of the 1920s. Oh, well, it's been absolutely wonderful uh, talking to you this evening. You've really uh, brought uh, the work and the, the influence, the incredible impact of John Steinbeck's uh, work to our audience. Uh, Professor Danica Turche, who's president of the International Society of Steinbeck Scholars and a wonderful scholar on uh, Steinbeck herself. We'll be back with more on the life, legacy and work of John Steinbeck right after this break. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back as we explore the life and work of John Steinbeck and I'm rejoined by my panel of brilliant experts, Professor Susan Schillinglaw, Professor Tara Stubbs and Professor Nicholas P. Taylor. Lovely text in from Elizabeth in Rahini on 53106 who says, Patrick, great show and panel. Love of mice and men always cry at the end of the book and of the movie. Now, Susan, you've done a wonderful introduction uh, to Of Mice and Men for the Penguin Modern Classics and you begin it by talking about how Steinbeck celebrated friendship both in his life and in his fiction and friendship is so important in that in that book and and in his works and I was wondering uh, you know can you maybe can you maybe tease that out for us and what is it about of mice and men that has resonated with audiences and with readers uh, for so many years and for so long uh, well I think that Friendship uh, for Steinbeck um, was based in part on his own friendships. He had a lot of very close male friends, primarily Edward Everett, who was a marine biologist in Monterey, and they were soulmates, uh, sort of in the romantic sense of the word, really. They um, sort of sparked one another's creativity and interest in the intersection between science and the humanities. Um, and so I think that friendship became the basis of men many of the friendships in his work. If you think of Tom Joad and Jim Casey, uh, those, or um, in Indubious Battle, there's a kind of mentorship and uh, friendship in that book. But I think it was a kind of relationship that was 
um, of that wasn't hierarchical. He didn't write very well about marriage. I mean, he did say in The Grapes of Wrath, um, Ma Jode is certainly a towering figure, and in The Pearl, the woman is, um, uh, Juana is a very convincing character, but he didn't really tackle the subject of marriage in any great depth, um, usually. But friendship is kind of the enduring theme in his novels, and I think that, you know, if if you're trying to attract reluctant readers, um, I think, say, in junior high or um, early high school, I think that Of Mice and Men is a compelling book because it's accessible. Uh, it's um, It has so many ideas in it. Um, it tackles race. It tackles gender and social injustice. And uh, so I think it's a very compelling narrative in many different ways. But it's also about, you know, friendship, and that's what young readers are thinking about. Um, and I think it endures because the play is very good, the films are very good. Um, it's just a, a universal story, I think, of of friendship and loss. And it's very interesting what you what you write about uh, in the research he did. He researched the the experiences of of these, but then he didn't necessarily want to make it historically accurate. He he didn't want to be bound down because he was looking for something deeper and perhaps a deeper truth. Well, I think that Steinbeck is seen um, often as a realistic novelist. That he and he was very journalistic in his prose. He was a journalist as well as a um, certainly a writer of fiction, film scripts, uh, nonfiction, etc. So there's a kind of um, uh, reality of experience in a book like The Grapes of Wrath and certainly of Mice and Men. He was a field worker himself, and that makes his way into the book. But he wanted it to also have a quality of, well, in Of Mice and Men, the dream, the power of the dream, the power of the imagination. Um, and I think that balance between the texture of dream, of symbol, of um, uh, the the imagination is as powerful in Steinbeck as the realistic texture of his works. And Of Mice and Men blends both. Um, you, that the dream, the idea of land, of ownership of acres, which is the quintessential American, you know, yearning for a home, a place, uh, universal as well, of course. And I think Steinbeck taps into that in George and Lenny and their their desire for land, which of course attracts everybody on the ranch. And then more broadly, California means an awful lot to him and the landscape means an awful lot to him and in a way helps inspire his creative process that uh, it becomes almost like a character in the stories. Very definitely. You know, I was listening to everyone talking about modernism and I think you have to also think about Steinbeck lived in the West, in the Western part of the um, United States. And it's a bit like, you know, Ireland and the difference between... Um, Dublin and Galway. Um, and so a voice coming out of the West was seen as, it, it wasn't seen as an innovative voice. I mean, after all, Hemingway's in Paris, Fitzgerald's in Paris, um, and Hemingway is in California, where not many writers had come from, and it wasn't seen as the, certainly as the cutting edge of modernism. But I think he was also very experimental in so many ways. Um, you know, Mice and Men is a play novelette. Grapes of Wrath balances uh, story and really nonfiction with the little the interchapters uh, and the essays. And I think he was always trying to experiment, not as not as obviously in, uh, as Hemingway and it's, and certainly in Faulkner. But I think he was experimenting. But I also think he was modernist or certainly contemporary in his concern for environmental awareness, because from the very beginning of his career. He basically thought characters needed to be seen in terms of their environment, that you couldn't separate people from the places that they lived. And he saw humans as another species occupying place. So environmental awareness, a sense of holism, ecological holism, um, is one of the strong currents in all of his all of his books, not only The Grapes of Wrath, which is about drought and environmental devastation, but Cannery Row, which is about um, Monterey and an enclave of uh, people living in Monterey, uh, Sea of Cortez, which is one of his own favorite books. So I think he's very 
innovative in that way and being having a real environmental concern. Nick, it's interesting that Steinbeck wrote so powerfully about racial pe- prejudice, bigotry, uh, exposing and, 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 and opposing uh, uh, discrimination uh, because of race or mental ability or income or, or whatever. And he didn't pull his punches and me- some reacted very badly to it. And uh, some of the criticisms and some of the reasons why some of the works were banned was to do with the language. And sometimes it was to do with the sentiment. And we heard about them being banned in Ireland for a time that, that there was, there, there was that controversy there with the works. Yeah. And I think we see that still. <laughs> Here in the United States, you know, uh, forces of conservative of conservatism, perhaps even white supremacy, uh, reacting uh, aggressively against uh, voices calling for a change in, uh, you know, ultimately the way we think about race in this country, and for us to uh, acknowledge it and not brush it brush it aside as though it were uh, a problem. Uh, of the past, and I think in Steinbeck's day, those those forces were were still there. You know that a lot of people would prefer not to talk about race in the 30s and the 40s and the, all through the into the 60s. Um, and gosh, Patrick, I wish it were different here. You know, I wish we weren't still having this debate. Um, I wish that we, I wish that following Steinbeck's model, we were. Um, as a nation, uh, engaging more directly with this this um, this unhealed wound um, at, that results from our history of slavery in this country, and we just we haven't. And I, I suppose though that Steinbeck by by opening up these issues and exploring them and forcing people to confront them, mm-hmm. he has helped shape and change maybe in his own way through 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 that through that literature well i think so i you know every year as director of the center for steinbeck studies i often get called by reporters in um in towns across the united states and around the world where the local school district has banned one of steinbeck's books and they they would like for me to comment on it and this year it was a, a school district near Buffalo, New York, um, where there was a push to, to ban of mice and men because of the, um, the use of the N-word. Um, and, you know, that's, <laughs> this debate has come up ex- in exactly these same terms many, many, many times um, since Steinbeck published that book. And uh, it seems clear to me how Steinbeck would have felt about it, which is he wanted to depict the language that these farmhands were using um, to refer to the, the, the one black farmhand who had to live separately. His name was Crooks uh, in Of Mice and Men, and he had his own quarters. He was, there was segregation even on this ranch. And, um, and he, as you say, didn't want to pull his punches. He didn't want to use euphemisms when the men themselves would not have. And, um, and I think that that's important um, to, to, uh, show children um, who may be reading this book for the first time when they are, say, 12 years old, 13 years old. Um, I think that far from it being something that we should shelter our children from, I think it's something that we need uh, as teachers to uh, to lead them through and to explain the context around um, around not only what what it was like at you know in a ranch in California in the mid thirties um, at that, at that time, but also what Steinbeck intended and why he wanted to depict it this way. And I think there, so there's lessons um, about social justice. There's lessons about awareness of, of difference in there for children, but then there's also uh, literary lessons in there too. You know, uh, there, I think Steinbeck sets a, he set in all of his work uh, a wonderful example for, for future writers of how to engage with, you know, what a, a middle school teacher might call difficult material. No, very nicely put, very powerful indeed. Uh, Tara, what would you see as the great legacy of Steinbeck? 
That's a, a really interesting question, and it's one I've been thinking about. I was thinking about this yesterday because we we're on the eve, obviously, of the 4th of July, and it's tempting to say something like Steinbeck was one of the greatest American novelists, but I am aware now that our ideas of America and representation are shifting, and I think this debate has shown that, actually. So I would be wary of declaring anything to be a great American novel, but I think, as the panellists have said, um, Steinbeck is, is quite unique in that he really does make us think about what, what it means to be American. But I think, as well, his skill goes beyond questions of nation and for me it's his ability to tell stories about people who represent both the best and the worst aspects of the human condition. The figure of Kathy in East of Eden I think is a brilliant example. A sociopath and a monster as Steinbeck has called her. She's still somehow charismatic and arresting and you are drawn to her despite yourself and I suppose that that sort of touches on what we've been talking about today this issue of what should be censored and what shouldn't you know she's the epitome of evil but it's really interesting to see that character written large I think Steinbeck wrote stories that people wanted and still want to read during a time when more experimental literature seemed to consider the reading experience less and less when novels were becoming more oblique and more complex either in the way the stories were told or in their lack of plot altogether but instead, I think Steinbeck fuses a talent for storytelling for a deep, with a deep faith in the power of such stories. And I think this faith is almost spiritual for him. And I think that's part of what, for some people, make him unfashionable. People like Faulkner and T.S. Eliot and other people who are mentioned today were seen as being kind of distanced and, uh, you know, at one removed from their text but Steinbeck can't do that and I think that might make him unfashionable but it also reminds us that a modern novel can also be readable and engaging. Okay well I think that's a wonderful note on which to end our discussion tonight. My thanks to my brilliant panel of experts Professor Susan Schillinglaw, Professor Tara Stubbs, Professor Nicholas P. Taylor and we also heard from Dr. Danica uh, Danica Churche. Well that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to everyone who put tonight's show together Susan Calf, my producer and Peter Malloy on sound. Next week we'll be talking about Cary Grant and the making of a Hollywood icon, finding out how China went communist in 1945 and how that affected the world and we'll be talking about Isaac Newton's later career and whether he benefited financially from the slave trade. So join us next week on News Talk. We've been Talking History. Good night. Talking History on News Talk.